everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hello, Naomi, and this is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to be joined by the CEO of Spence Chapin, which is an adoption agency in New York. I think it's the oldest adoption agency in New York. A repeat guest for this podcast, Kate Trumboltskaya. Welcome, Kate. Thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for having me back, Naomi and Ian. I'm excited to be here and to speak with you again. Sure. And I should just full disclosure, I am chairman of the board of Spence Chapin, proudly work with Kate. So I just wanted to declare that for our audience to know. Yes. One of the many reasons we want to have Kate back is to talk to us kind of about all the conversations around adoption in the wake of the Supreme Court Dobbs decision and kind of what the landscape looks like for women who are pregnant and kind of not sure what they're going to do next. So Kate, can you talk to us a little bit about what, if any, changes you've seen in your world since the Supreme Court decision has come down? Sure. I mean, we are all feeling anxious about the way adoption is being spoken about and the way it's being framed in the context of a choice for women. It's being framed as a negative option, rather one that should be on the same wavelength as other options. Spence Chapin is an institution with over 125 years or so of rich history of supporting and helping women here in New York and also in New Jersey. And we pride ourselves on comprehensive options counseling. And counseling really includes discussing all the options, all the alternatives for a woman that comes to us in crisis and who is really has no access to viable, good, solid information. And that's what we're here for. So what has changed for us is really in terms of the delivery of services and what we've been doing for over 100 years is essentially the same. But we're trying to, we're sort of moving against this negative perspective that's been flowing around, around adoption, that adoption is somehow an alternative to abortion rather than being an alternative to parenting, or rather just being a positive choice and option for women. So we're in a place not only having to present adoption as a viable option, but we're also trying to, we feel like we're trying to constantly justify it as a good choice. So the fact that we're doing it post-dubs even more than we used to is really just showing the impact of the decision that it's having on us today as an adoption agency provider. Say you're trying to justify it. Like, do you mean that in terms of the public perception? I mean, there have been lots of op-eds recently that have been anti-adoption in the Washington Post, the New York Times, for instance. But are you trying to justify it to the women coming to you in crisis because they have this narrative in their heads? Or do you just mean in terms of the public conversation? I mean, I think it's a combination of both. It's a public conversation where there was a narrative going around that adoption is has this adversarial feel the same way that abortion does, and it's negative and it's taking rights away from women. It puts it in the context of conversation as abortion. In terms of the women that we're seeing, now we're justifying even more so that adoption is not the same like foster care. 
It is something that is completely different. And somehow foster care has become even more entrenched in the word of adoption since the post-dubs decision. So I'll give you an example. We did a women's empowerment panel in Newark, New Jersey, and it was a number of women from Newark community who came together to react to the decision and talk about what it means for them. And many talked about what it felt for them to hear this decision as women who have experienced maybe crisis pregnancies or had or knew someone who did. And most of them said that they never contemplated adoption and they wouldn't because even now more so they're thinking about government intervention and they're relating adoption to foster care, which is a government intervention. So again, this notion of intruding on the right to privacy, intervening on rights, imposing on constitutional rights, it's all commingled with this notion that Adoption is foster care and adoption is negative because it's it's infringing on the rights of women. And so, so is, that is not what adoption is. So is part of the challenge now, Kate, to create a new understanding of what adoption actually is? I mean, can you talk a little bit about the nature of adoption now, particularly this idea of open adoption versus what has existed, what people perceive to have hit um, existed historically. And the sure. difference between private adoption and adoption out of the foster care system, because as much as I hope our listeners know this by now, we are going to go over this again, folks. Yeah. So I'll start with the foster care versus private adoption. Foster care adoption is completely different. The foster care process involves removing, infringing, or intervening with the parental rights by the government. So it creates tension and adversity from the moment you're investigating a potential maltreatment or neglect. Foster care adoptions usually take place anywhere from an average about three to five years from the time a child enters foster care. Because the laws require an, a foster care agency or a child protective provider to begin termination of parental rights at least 15 out of 22 months since the child entered care. So aside from the adversity and the tension that exists in the process of entering foster care, receiving services, adoption is never discussed in the beginning of the child's time in care. So we can talk about best interests. We can talk about the psychological impact. The focus is on reunifying family, rehabilitating. The system requires you to touch every other possible alternative before contemplating adoption. So by the time you are beginning the termination of parental rights process, the child has been in care now two years or so. And the end of that process takes another year or two. So we're really looking at adoption being finalized at five years. So we lose pre-adoptive homes along the way. The child is replaced multiple times. There's confusion about the relationship between the child and the biological family. And there's really no positive outcomes in any of those scenarios, other than to um, keep the child in a legal relationship with the birth parents. And that's really the argument that you see from a lot of child welfare experts. Birth families are better than and kin families are better than non-kin families. And hence, this is the justification for 
this long process. And so private domestic infant adoption or private adoption is completely different. It's a process of empowering women to make a choice to choose for themselves every step of the way. So when they walk into the doors of Spence Chapin, they are making a choice by coming in here in the first place. And whatever's happening to them, they need the counseling and the services that we provide. So Ian, to your question, what is open adoption and how is it different, different than foster care is that women who come to us receive comprehensive services, not only up until the time they place their child, but also beyond that. And they have an option. They can choose to parent, they can choose to place. And what we offer are critical services that most agencies and foster care doesn't offer. Children who come into care for to Spence Chapin, and when I say care, it's respite care or interim care. It's a time for a birth parent or expectant parent to really feel what it's like to be away from the child by placing him or her where there are approved providers. And they take a step back and they think about how does this feel for me? What does this mean for me? Can I do this? And this is really an empowering process. It doesn't force them to do anything. It actually makes them understand what it's like to make a decision. And if it's, in fact, the right decision for them, because every case is different. So interim care, it's a really important service that we offer at Spence Chapin. Then we also provide every attorney with access to independent legal representation. So in foster care, you have attorneys who are assigned to parents to defend them in an action against them on a child protective matter. While they're defending, they're not focusing on working with a family on supporting them potentially in exploring their options. Their job and their focus is to defend them in an action to terminate their parental rights or to pursue a neglect or abuse proceeding. At Spence Chapin, our attorneys support whatever decision the birth parents make and ensure that their rights are protected no matter what. And so they're not affiliated with Spence Chapin. The other piece of open adoption is that every single birth parent gets to meet and select the adoptive family that they want to raise their child. And that's really important. In foster care, if it's a termination of parental rights, there's no meeting of families. It's a complete cutoff. There's no open adoption. There's no future contact, although for most It's unrealistic because most of the families or children are old enough to know who their birth families are and continue to have contact. But that tension exists there. It's a complete cutoff. Here, we're supporting and encouraging ongoing contact between adoptive families and children. It's essential to every child to know their roots and how they're connected to their birth family, because those are the questions they're going to ask when they grow up. And so... Those are just some of the highlights of the open adoption. And it's a lot of misinformation. Adoption, again, is linked to foster care, which is, it is completely different. And by the way, I think the most important thing, we talked about the timeline for adoption. At Spence Chapin, when a child enters our, is placed with an adoptive family after a birth parent undergoes a process, it takes anywhere from three to six months to finalize the adoption. So the time frame for permanency, for 
stability, family stability, for consistency, for all those things that we want and for all the children that deserve to be in a loving, good, and stable family. All of that happens in less than a year, less than nine months. So for the most part, obviously, these are two very different things. But what the Dobbs decision does in states that may adopt more stringent abortion regulations, and New York and New Jersey are not really among those. So I guess we'd be talking sort of hypothetically about agencies like Spence Chapin that would be in other parts of the country. Do you think we will see an increase in women who are carrying children that they either don't want or are unable to care for. And this is where we do have to wonder, is there some way, like especially if a mother has been in some kind of contact with the child welfare system in the past, previous children have been removed because there's been some kind of maltreatment, like is there some way to think about talking to those mothers about adoption before those children are taken into the foster care system? Or is that just so potentially coercive that we need to stay away from it? I think that talking to women about options should never feel or appear to be coercive. I think we uh, we owe it to every birth parent, expectant parent to discuss their options. The fact that child uh, protective agencies prohibit that in many jurisdictions because of the funding, Title IV-E, that supports return to parent, any other kinship care, and so not only supports it, encourages it, rewards it, then it creates no incentive for foster care workers to discuss adoption. But if you have a woman in crisis and you're only talking to her about foster care and she is and her child is in foster care, and adoption is never discussed because there is some misconception of adoption being a a coercive notion because it's being offered at a time when there is a crisis, then I think we we all miss the kind of, we'll miss as providers and helping children avoid the child welfare system and helping women make empowered choices rather than be stuck in a system for years that really creates tragedies for their children and for them. I was going to ask, I know you said that, you know, you don't treat adoption as an alternative to abortion, but just listening to everything that you just described, you know, knowing your options, the the waiting period, the representation of counsel, all of those things. Do you think that most young women who, who are considering abortion even know that this pathway even exists for them? We mostly see women who are not, who are past a period where abortion can be even contemplated. So do I think that women are considering adoption in the same context as abortion? Absolutely not. They're not considering. I mean, we know from the recent research, professionals and doctor's offices, social service agencies, no one's discussing with them adoption. It's not when a woman comes into Planned Parenthood or another abortion clinic that a social worker sits with them and says, besides discussing the risk of harm of abortion and all that comes with it, I doubt, in fact, I know that no one talks to them about adoption as an alternative. We as an adoption agency, of course, if someone comes in and they're able to 
get an abortion. We discuss all options because again, options counseling includes all those options. And for us to exclude an option in this conversation or in this context would really be disingenuous and really put us in a place of being predatory and opportunistic, which we are not. And that is why 65% of the women who come to us choose to parent. And I think that abortion providers, other professionals who refer to abortions need to discuss adoption as a viable option to women who are contemplating abortion. That should be part of the conversation. But Ian, to your point, it's not happening. Do you think one kind of objection, I don't know if I call it objection, that I've heard recently is this idea that the country is going to be flooded with thousands of unwanted babies as a result of this decision. I'm not sure that that's true, but can you kind of talk to us about the situation uh, that you see in terms of adoptive parents and the availability of adoptive parents? Are there loving, stable homes for these children to go to if they come to you? Oh, tons, tons of adoptive families We have a waiting list to get into our info session so and our webinars by families who are interested in adopting. It's a myth how this information is is shared because every single adoption agency not only has a packed list of families who are ready, able, and willing to adopt, but a waiting list that's miles long. And it's surprising to hear that anyone believes that there'd be so many unwanted baby and so little number of families who are willing to adopt them, which is, it hasn't been true for decades. And it's definitely not true today. I think this is another, you know, confusion between the public foster care system and private adoption. I mean, we definitely have kids in foster care who need stable, loving homes, but that is for a variety of reasons, a completely different pool of kids. They tend to be older. They tend to have mental health, behavioral problems, medical issues. It's true. There are fewer parents out there who want to adopt them, but that's not the same pool who's coming to you. That's correct. And also, let's not forget the process that the foster care system makes you go through as a foster parent and all the hoops you have to jump through. But not only that, you have to be in this waiting limbo. Am I going to be a parent or am I going to not be a parent? Is this placement going to happen for me or not? So, and foster care parents are wonderful. They're dedicated, but a lot of them just create these or enter into these relationships just to be foster parents. And they don't want to be pre-adoptive parents. Nothing wrong with that, but that's also a very big difference. The families that work with us, they unequivocally want to grow their family through adoption. And that's most important for them. Yeah. And so, Kate, can you also talk a little bit about cost? Because one of the criticisms of adoption is, well, it's wealthy, you know, people who are not able to have their own children and they're essentially taking advantage of low-income women who don't have choices. What are the economic implications and are there resources for families that aren't wealthy who want to grow their families through adoption? So, I mean, for Spence Chapin, we never turn a family away because of financial reasons. We have all kinds of families. We have LGBTQ families. We have single parents. We have families who are paying via payment plan. We have families who are 
receiving scholarships. We have families who are fully being subsidized. So it runs a big range. So to say that it's tied to economics is is incorrect. Are there women that are coming to us who are fall into a certain demographics who are contemplating adoption? Absolutely. But again, we work with women who uh, chose adoption because it wasn't the right thing for them to do at that moment in time, meaning they weren't ready to parent. So I'm not sure if I'm answering your question, Ian, but essentially that antiquated view of adoption agencies taking babies away from poor, vulnerable women and somehow it's the babies are handed over to wealthy families who can't have children. It's, that has shifted so much over time. That's not what we see and that's not what happens. What we see is a lot of substance abuse and mental illness where women come to us and desperately need help and they have no other resources and their only alternative may be foster care. What we see is families coming from all walks of life who wish and want and desperately need to grow their families and choose adoption because that's what they want to do. And that's how it is today. So I feel that that's a a very old way of thinking about adoption and one that's unfortunate and one that's constantly comes up. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. So, So much of all of this seems to be changing the public perception of what adoption is today as truly being an empowering option for for women in challenging circumstances where they just want to know what are all the choices I truly have. Absolutely. I want to share with you, this may be a way to highlight what's happening around adoption, what's happening around COVID. We have, we're working with a birth parent who is contemplating a slightly older child, a toddler. And she came to us by finding us online. And we have been working with her for a while. And this will be a transition into a family. This is an older child. And we definitely need some time to transition. And she identified the family, met with them. And during one of the options counseling sessions, we asked her, what's the reason behind your decision? Because we do get into the depth of it. And she said, you know, I never wanted to parent. When I was pregnant, I was so nervous. I was so scared and I felt so guilty. And we said, why did you feel so guilty? She said, well, it was during the time of COVID. And I felt guilty even thinking about adoption. And I thought that adoption was all foster care. And I felt guilty. How can I place my child into a system in the middle of a pandemic? So here you have a woman who was parenting a child. And she said, I'm not connected. I do think that it's in the best interest of him to be adopted by a family. And I've been wanting to do that. And I finally found my way to you. I've looked you up so many times since he was born. And now I really want to move forward with this plan. Mm -hmm. So here it highlights the whole misconception, the lack of services and supports that were available for her during COVID even during the time she gave birth. And one of the other questions was, well, why don't you talk to your doctors, social workers, a place where you gave birth? Well, I was really, I tried to, but it was, we can call ACS. It really didn't have any referrals for me. She did give birth out of state. So that was kind of fascinating to see how someone who 
really didn't want to parent this child. And she had many reasons for that she shared, but didn't have access, didn't have proper information and resources to be able to tap into us early on. It's such a disservice to women. Exactly. Uh, to not to not give them this information and this help. One last question, and maybe this falls under kind of misconceptions people have, but a lot of the conversation around adoption now and the kind of belittling of adoption as an option has to do with race. And so I was wondering if you could kind of talk a little bit about the racial makeup of the birth parents who are coming to you and the adoptive parents. Now, obviously, like you're in New York City, so and you do New York and New Jersey, so it's kind of a diverse pool in a lot of ways. But, you know, the 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 kind of popular narrative out there is that these are black children who are being snatched away by white parents. So what do you see kind of in your day to day world in this regard? Yeah, I get that question a lot, Naomi, and majority of it is a mixed demographics of both birth parents and adoptive parents because we are in New York and New Jersey. The majority of women that come to us who choose adoption are actually white women from Suffolk County between the ages of 18 to 24. So depends on exactly what your community and a lot of them come from faith-based communities where Abortion is just simply not something they choose. Suffolk County is Long Island for our non-New York-based listeners. Yes, Suffolk County, Long Island. And our adoptive families are our mixed families. One of the things that we always work with families, anyone who comes to us, a birth parent chooses their family. This is the power of choice, chooses a family. So you have birth parents who come in who may want to choose a transracial family and some mixed race family and want a family because their partner is mixed race and they want, it's important for them. Some choose to have a black family raise their child. And that's exactly what we do. And we uh, support that choice. If we can, if we have a family that can be a right match for them. But the most important thing is education, preparation, and training. Spence Chapin has done transracial adoptions for decades. It's a myth. It's also incorrect to say that only Black women and Black children are placed for adoption with white families. It's definitely not happening in New York, in New Jersey, and at Spence Chapin. So it's mixed. And there are women that come to us from different walks of life, different races, different backgrounds, different ethnicities, and the same thing for our families. Right. Love is love is love is love is love. With you from Lin-Manuel. <laughs> We hope to really change the image adoption now more than ever, because it's really a, an important choice for women. And I know we keep saying that, but we need to start practicing it. We need everyone who works with women to start embracing it in a real way. So just saying, well, yes, we talked about adoption at the end of our session. That's not enough. Professionals need to to sit down with women and talk to them about adoption the way they would talk to them about abortion. This has been a great conversation. I'm glad we got to a lot of the myths around adoption and uh, kind of understand a little bit more what this landscape looks like now because there's a lot of misinformation out there. So thanks again, Kate, for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? You can get this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, Kate. Thank you for having me. Yeah, take care. Bye.